Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Womenhood and International Relations podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Bonilla. And for today's episode, we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Aquila Colisetti. She is the Policy and Campaigns Manager at Madre. Madre is an international women's rights organization partnering with community-based community women's groups worldwide facing war and disaster. Aquila, thank you so much for joining this podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to learn about the work of Madre and all the origins that led to you supporting projects worldwide. Can you share with us a bit about this organization's work and what are your aims? Sure, so Madre was formed about 38 years ago and our origins really lie in working in solidarity with women's movements globally. We came together first in 1983 when a group of women activists, poets, teachers, and organizers from the US uh, were actually invited to visit a group of women in Nicaragua where you know, the US was training and funding these right-wing Contra militias. And these women made the trip and saw the impact of the war on the women, children, and families firsthand. They saw that you know, daycare centers, schools, churches, community centers, health clinics, they were all being bombed by the Contras in their efforts to overthrow the left-wing government. And so civilians had also been raped, people were being tortured and abducted, you know, crops were being destroyed. And so communities were being severely impacted. Yes, yet there was very little media attention or very little knowledge in the US about what was happening and the role of the US in perpetuating that harm. And so this gave rise to Madre. These activists came back to the US with the understanding of what was happening and wanted to work in deep partnership with you know, women who were at the front lines of this crisis. Um, and they came back to the US with a mission to share the impact of the Contra war and the stories of the women and children impacted with allies in the US to raise more attention to this crisis and also demand a shift in US foreign policy. Um, and I think that origin story just shows how Madre from our inception has really been focused on interrogating US foreign policy from a feminist and a gender lens and also ensuring that people in the US really understand the real life impact that foreign policy actually has on people around the world. Um, and since then, we've been dedicated to working in solidarity with women at the grassroots level globally. Um, and now our work has expanded, it's focused on peace building, but also advancing climate justice and ending gender violence as well. Um, we are also a feminist fund, so we engage in long-term deep-rooted partnerships with women at the grassroots level, especially you know, indigenous and Afro-descendant women who are at the front lines of the climate crisis. Um, and through another initiative called the Feminist Policy Jumpstart, we are working to bring the voices, expertise, and solutions of grassroots women into policy spaces, both in the US and in the international level, to ensure that communities most impacted are shaping a more feminist US foreign policy. Um, and through this work, we're also working to build solidarity and create space for exchange of strategies and learning between you know, feminist and climate activists and movements in the US and their counterparts in the global south. Oh, that's incredible. I, I want to learn a bit more about this um, impact of the organization throughout like time, maybe like to understand 
how coming from the front lines back to the US has led to changes in foreign policy. Is, are there like one or two examples that you can share with us on how, how impactful is this? Because sometimes it feels like, oh no, you just went and you, you just talked to a senator and that's it, you know? But you have actually made, you know, like specific changes. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, in this kind of policy and advocacy work, it's not always easy to see that immediate impact. I think it's sort of the long term work and, you know, the continued work over time, sometimes even decades that you see that movement building and you know, policy work, uh, you see the fruits of it and the final results of it. But I think um, just one example is, you know, we work to bring our partner from Yemen into conversations um, through a congressional delegation to Washington, D.C. She was able to meet with members of Congress and allies um, and share the, the understand, her understanding of what's happening on the ground and the U.S. role in furthering the war in Yemen and the impact on women and communities. And I think, you know, it's not maybe the most concrete thing. It's not a bill that was passed or a resolution, but I think we saw a change in understanding and perception, right? The folks that we were speaking with, you know, they, uh, they often don't have the opportunity to hear directly from women at the front lines who are experiencing the impact of this crisis. And so I think a lot of the, con the context and nuance she was sharing about the way that different communities in Yemen were impacted um, changed their perception. You know, I think there sometimes is a perception that in a war-torn location like Yemen, um, you can't do longer term development work. You can't do community resilience work. You can only provide a shipment of aid, for example. But our partner was working to you know, build livelihood programs um, to work with the community to create more sustainable forms of um, sustaining people at the community level. And so I think that was um, something new that people hadn't necessarily heard that, you know, women in Yemen were, are doing this. Um, she also spoke about how women are forging local peace agreements between warring parties. They are releasing prisoners, you know, and they're, they have all these achievements at the local level. Um, and so I think that's, you know, just seeing the, the change in understanding and perception uh, is one success. Um, and I think there's, you know, other examples um, as well of that work. Yeah, as, as policy and campaigns manager right now with the feminist policy program, uh, foreign policy program, it's like an example itself because the feminist foreign policy took over 30 years since the beginning of feminist theory applied to IR. Like it took time to create the first model and now we are seeing that it's becoming widespread. Um, in the case of the US, um, which is right now being considered um, the country with the most military bases around the world. Um, how do you think that a feminist lenses can help improve US foreign policy? Yeah, I think that applying a feminist lens that reveals to us a lot of assumptions, right, that underlie US foreign policy and, are, and the dominant way of doing things. And I think when we apply that lens, that feminist lens, we realize just how much our dominant approaches prioritize values that are considered masculine in our society. You know, that's domination or force, violence, individualism, even logic, right? These are the kinds of values that are prioritized um, and seen as strong 
as what is going to keep us safe in our society. And at the same time, you see that feminine values or so-called feminine values like care or cooperation, collectivism, you know, empathy and even emotion. Like these are the kinds of values that are denigrated and seen as weak. Um, and so that kind of patriarchal logic permeates throughout our way of doing things in foreign policy. And I think that then results in, you know, US imperialism, the endless profit seeking we're seeing, the extraction of natural resources beyond our planet's uh, means, right? Neoliberal economic paradigms and, and also militaristic approaches like the vast number of military bases that we have around the world. Um, and so I think a feminist lens is, you know, it's not just about gender parity. It's not just about adding women and stir. It's actually about thinking about how we can fundamentally challenge these systems of oppression, right? whether that's patriarchy, hierarchy, inequality. Um, and I think key to feminism is the examining power, right? Power relations, who has power in our society? How is that power concentrated and created? And feminism works to transform these power structures and ways to shift those power relationships so that people who are impacted, communities at the grassroots, uh, social movements actually have a say. And more than that, have a leadership role in shaping the decisions that affect them. And I think that's, that's what we're trying to do through the Feminist Policy Jumpstart Program. And I think just two other things I would add, you know, one key feature I think is of course in intersectionality, right? Innovated by black feminists. Um, and that's key because it's about understanding how the intersection of identities makes some people more vulnerable and also how each individual's very specific you know, situation, social location impacts you know, the way they're affected. And that's really important when thinking about climate change, right? Because climate change is, is a multiplier of existing gender and racial inequalities. Um, and, you know, in times of drought, for example, women and girls are often responsible for sourcing fuel, food and water for their households uh, across most of the global south. And so in times of drought, they have to walk that many more hours and their workload doubles or triples when they're trying to sustain their families. Um, and that then has multiplier effects affecting their health, their education, their well-being. Um, and I think an intersectional lens also reveals a specific impact on you know, indigenous women, for example, you know, they're confronting pipelines on their communities, uh, their territories, and that gives rise to man camps, which leads to sexual violence and missing and murdered indigenous women. And that's something that indigenous women are confronting every day um, here in the US and in Canada as well. And it also reveals how black communities, for example, have been disproportionately exposed to toxics and pollution uh, that impact their health. Um, and so I think we need to apply this lens because we need to look closely and design interventions and policies to actually address these differences. Otherwise, you know, we risk further deepening these inequalities, both with climate change and also if our solutions don't head on, you know, tackle intersectionality. And I think the last thing that we've been thinking a lot about at Madre is how a feminist lens centers care, um, care for each other and for the planet as well, and just the ways in which we're all interconnected. And I think that's really a counter to neoliberal ideologies and the sort of competitive zero-sum approach we're seeing to foreign policy, which is all about separating us and prioritizing our individual success over our collective success. 
Um, and so when you think about care, you think about how, you know, what is valued in society and why, you know, why is care work devalued and invisibilized, even though it's sort of the crucial work that makes all other productive work possible. And that's also critical to many conversations around climate justice because, you know, care work is climate work. It's low carbon work that sustains our communities. And so we've been doing a lot of work to uplift care jobs and clean jobs as we're talking about climate justice, because that's crucial to address, you know, gender and racial inequality, because you know, the majority of people performing care work are women and girls, and especially people of color, um, immigrant women. And so that's, that needs to be part of the conversation around climate as well. Well, you touched a very important topic there. Care work is climate work. I didn't see it as that. And I would love to um, learn more about it in a bit, but I will like to um, go back into something that you shared before on um, two perceptions. The first is on uh, the hegemonic masculinity, which is something that through feminist lenses, we often criticize the government and mostly United States as a superpower or considered as a superpower. Um, and the wounded masculine and how it exercises or it showcases not only through military, but also through capitalism and the way that we engage into economy. Um, and the other side is us as female women researchers, we our approach to politics may be seen as what can we do in front of this big monster of the big state, you know, and we can change the perception. But what would you say, for example, to our listeners out there that may be thinking, I want to change things, but they're a bit skeptical of how impactful will changing a perception be, you know, in terms of politics and, and point policy making? Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a great question. And I think when we think about, you know, militarism and national security, for example, increasingly we're seeing the climate crisis being referred to as sort of a national security threat by the Biden administration and by um, many others, you know, the, the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, they're integrating this analysis about, you know, what are the threats that are multiplied by climate change, and they're bringing that into their plans around border security, around military planning, around war games. And so I think this is, you know, this showcases how this sort of masculine, uh, so-called masculine approach to security is permeating, right? Um, it's all about, um, it's, it's a sort of a militaristic framing and I think the challenge with a national security framing is that it's likely to legitimize a militarized response to the climate crisis. Um, and that is, you know, the US has long considered security as a way of protecting us from them and using violence and domination and to tackle perceived threats and even manufactured threats in many cases. Uh, and so when applied to the climate context, that mentality sees climate migrants as a threat, and the response is going to be to securitize the border further, right? It's these potential armed conflicts that might worsen as resources became scarce as a threat. And the response again might be military intervention or you know, training or funding for local security forces. We're already seeing some of that in uh, Biden's uh, immigration plan where there's a lot of funding going to Central American police and military forces. Um, and so, 
you know, I think that this national security language has also been used to name black, brown and indigenous climate defender that threats them to repress them. We're seeing that all around the world where human rights defenders, land defenders are being criminalized because they're seen as a threat by the government. Um, and that's happened in the US, the Department of Homeland Security has actually classified climate activists as extremists in the past, putting them on the same list as uh, white nationalists. Um, and we also saw, of course, the kinds of militarized crackdowns that we saw at Standing Rock. And so I think these are the kinds of things that are legitimized using the frame of national security. So just kind of looking at this example, I think feminist movements can really help us reimagine a, a different world and a new way of thinking about security. And a lot of it is about building a vision for a more feminist future, building a narrative, an alternative narrative to the dominant narrative. Um, and I think feminist movements are doing this today. They're thinking about moving away from this militarized notion of security towards human security, right? Which is understanding that what actually makes us safe is not bombs or weapons, it's not police or military, but it's going to be health, education, a living wage, housing. It's going to be confronting gender violence and, and addressing environmental destruction. And so I think that feminist movements can really help us in reframing and pushing a new narrative. And actually this kind of, uh, this, this kind of work to build narrative is incredibly important because it's going to shape the way media sees this issue. It's going to shape the way reporters talk about climate change. Um, it's going to change the way, you know, who is painted as a threat in our society in the dominant media narrative. Um, and so I think all of that is, uh, is, is part of the work that feminist movements can do and build towards. And I think another piece is, you know, feminist movements can really build alliances across borders. You know, they can break down this notion that uh, domestic policy is one thing and foreign policy is another thing. And they can connect the dots through movement building across the borders as well. In the case of the US with the Biden administration, there's um, a proposal for the Green New Deal to take place and uh, focus on you know, sustainable development and green new jobs and you know, building a new economy, a, a greener one. Um, however, it seems like it is disconnected to the military side that you were referring to uh, previously. But um, noting that the militarism and climate change are so intertwined and there's so big connection. What are you seeing that is happening with the Green New Deal that maybe needs to, to make the dots? Like we cannot leave the Department of Defense on its own, you know, it needs to work with the Green New Deal. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, the Biden administration has made great strides in, in thinking about green jobs and thinking about renewables. Um, and, but I think that on the other hand, we know that the US has this vast global military footprint, right? We have more than 800 carbon emitting bases in more than 70 countries. We have a history of launching wars in defense of oil supply. Um, <clears throat> and the US spends uh, up to 80 billion a year to ensure ongoing access to oil. And so that is propping up the fossil fuel industry and really worsening the root cause of climate crisis. Um, and the, the US military is actually the world's largest institutional emitter of greenhouse gases. And so, you know, we can't 
tackle climate change without tackling militarism. Um, but unfortunately, I think oftentimes in policy spaces, the only solution that's put forward is more money to green the military. And we've seen that happening. The Biden administration has actually requested 715 billion a year for the Pentagon. That's an increase over the Trump administration budget. Um, that sounds like a lot of money. That's almost $1 trillion, which, which is far beyond most of our imaginations, right? And some of those funds are focused on, you know, things like enhancing uh, the resilience of de defense facilities and military bases in the face of climate change or research to optimize energy performance in the military. And so these are things that would green the military in some way or reduce emissions in some way. But I think that the problem is we need to sort of demilitarize our foreign policy, not just make our lethal military operation more sustainable, more right? <laughs> yeah, more green. Right? You know, just be, you know, if we're destroying communities, if we are engaging in drone strikes, if we are destabilizing families, um, if we're continuing to sell bombs to Saudi Arabia or other countries that are perpetuating war, you know, that's. Uh, a greener military is not going to solve that fundamentally. It's going to continue to be a destructive forces in communities. And you know, when we look at Yemen, for example, the US has been complicit in funding Saudi Arabia, which has then uh, waged a war in Yemen. Um, and communities that are you know, at the receiving end of US bombs, they're not gonna be able to adapt <laughs> to the climate crisis. You know, they're going to be, fleeing for their lives, they might be in internally displaced camps. And so communities are not going to be able to adapt in a sustainable way to the impact of the climate crisis if they're in the midst of conflict and war. And so we also need to demilitarize our foreign policy more fundamentally. Um, and I think that needs to be part of you know, a larger conversation when we're thinking about the Green New Deal, when we're thinking about US foreign policy and how it links to militarism as well. Why hasn't there been like a conversation on the cause of militarism? Um, I wonder because when women bring this topic up or feminists bring this topic up, like it seems like we cancel each other out because it's like, oh, women are always the peacemakers, you know, like they always talk about peace and they don't want the military because they it's often associated stereotypically with feminine, you know, like the feminine is subdued, is passive, doesn't like aggression, etc. So whenever we advocate for the militarizing the, uh, the, the foreign policy, um, it seems like it's, oh, because of our nature, not because it's logical or reasoning in terms of climate change or in terms of, you know, population growth or in terms of peace, uh, peaceful society. Is there like a missing link that we perhaps um, haven't, you know, hammered down <laughs> or understood better on how to approach this topic better? Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Um, you know, I, I think, yes, you know, oftentimes women or feminists who are working on this issue are sort of seen as pacifists and you know, peace, peace is, like you said, part of our nature. Um, but I think that's sort of, a, you know, a fundamental misunderstanding of what we're calling for, which is thinking about power and power relations and the structures that enable militarism, that enable 
um, a lot of the systemic oppressions that we're facing. And I think feminism um, also brings sort of uh, feminist foreign policy approaches, I think also show us the climate crisis is global and touches all of us. Um, you know, we're all interconnected and we need to work together to tackle this crisis. And part of that is understanding that it's not about putting the US ahead of the rest of the world on this, but really galvanizing more cooperative approaches to secure our collective well-being. And so when we apply this kind of militaristic approach, we are also taking away from the cooperation that is possible when we can join together to tackle this problem. You know, we're seeing that, for example, with China, right? There's a lot of uh, rhetoric within the current administration um, about competition with China to win. In uh, the, the recent address, Biden even said that wind turbines should be built in Pittsburgh and not in Beijing. Um, and I think that's the kind of zero-sum logic that feminists are trying to push against, that, you know, why can't we have wind turbines everywhere, right? Um, it doesn't have to be just the U.S. It can be uh, all of us working together to move towards a more sustainable and just society. And part of that is also preventing uh, militaristic approaches towards China. Um, you know, there's a bill that is going to send potentially more than a billion dollars of military investments in the Indo-Pacific to counter China. And so this rhetoric actually results in, you know, results in policy change that could be uh, quite harmful. Um, and so I think that, yeah, we need to continue to make these logical arguments and connect the dots. And we need to continue to, build alliances across movements, right? Movements for peace, movements for climate justice, movements for indigenous rights, movements for racial justice. I think that feminist movements can really play a role in bridging that because of our intersectional perspective yeah. and our systemic lens. Like we understand how all of these things are connected and all of these systems need to be tackled head on together. And for that, we need to build a really intersectional diverse movement to, to counter this. And so I think what we can do is really continue to bridge the, that gap by bringing people together, bringing the social movements together to, to show how all of these issues are really deeply connected. Yeah, I, I want to touch base on these um, connections of grassroots organizations internationally. Um, specifically, um, there are fears in the global south that in the climate change movement, um, as well as the other <laughs> feminist movements, um, it seems as if women from the global south are used as tokens for several um, organizations in the north, or that there's a white savior complex lenses on the global south women's realities. Um, how are you approaching through Madre um, these criticisms or these critiques, critiques. <laughs> yeah, I think that you know the work that we do is really about forging solidarity between feminists in the U.S. and partners globally. And I think one way to do this is really to ground work in deep partnerships. You know, as we consider ourselves a feminist fund, and for us that means long-term partnerships. You know, oftentimes we're working with the same feminists or leaders for decades, right? It's not a one-time engagement. Um, we see them as long-term partners and we're doing this work of movement building and grassroots work for the long haul. 
Um, and we're also trying to create flexibility for partners to shape the priorities. You know, they know their community's needs, they know how funds are best going to be utilized, they know what strategies are needed, and they know when the strategies need to shift in, in response to political or humanitarian realities. And so it's really about trusting our partners to tell us um, how the funds are going to be best utilized um, and what they see as most effective. And it means trusting their longstanding knowledge and expertise at the community level. And I think it also means pairing the funds for the grassroots work, right? The humanitarian work, the climate response, the adaptation solutions that are happening on the ground and combining that with work to open space in international and US uh, policy forms for grassroots feminists to influence decision-making at the highest level. And so it's about building this sort of holistic partnership that is not just centered on, um, you know, one engagement, but it's about grant-making, partnerships, it's about policy work, movement building, it's a holistic approach in that sense. And I think another way to do this is to try and recognize that learnings are not one way, right? Feminist movements, and the global north have just as much, if not more, to learn from our allies and leaders in the global south about whether that's about tactics or strategies or narratives. You know, indigenous and Afro-descendant women, for example, they've been mobilizing against oil, gas, mining, agribusiness for decades in their communities. Um, and how can we create spaces for them to share that knowledge and expertise with uh, their allies, our activists in the global north who are confronting similar issues like the construction of pipelines on their territories. And so a lot of our work is really about creating these spaces for exchange so that the learnings flow both ways so that feminists in the US and in the global south are learning from each other from what works, what doesn't, about the challenges that they're facing. And they have that space to build solidarity together. And as one more thing is I think at the policy level too, we can really learn from the knowledge and the solutions developed by women at the front lines of the climate crisis. You know, they are at the local level, developing wind resistant housing, harvesting rainwater, creating urban farms. So indigenous and rural and Afro-descendant women globally just have generations of this deep traditional knowledge, right? About stewarding our natural resources, about sustaining their land and environment. And these are solutions that we think policymakers and movements in the global North can learn from, can even replicate and adapt to their own context. So just one recent example, I think, that points to the power of this kind of exchange is uh, looking at the right to nature, um, indigenous groups in Colombia, for example, have secured court judgments protecting the rights to nature and asserting that rivers actually have rights inherently. And we've seen similar laws and court cases in India, Uganda, Ecuador, and elsewhere. And I think that really draws on indigenous women's longstanding understanding that, you know, it's not our right to commodify Mother Earth or to try and put a value on the resources that sustain us, you know, nature doesn't belong to us. And now in the US, the same strategy is actually being used to win fights for streams and lakes, including in Florida and elsewhere. And so I think that's just one very concrete example of how we can learn from this work and this deep solutions that are happening at the grassroots level um, and bring them to, to the US context even. And so the learning should really go both ways. And I think that's why 
the work that we do in the Feminist Policy Jumpstart and at Madre uh, is focused on creating this kind of space for learning and exchange of solutions. Well, it feels very inspiring work and um, I want to um, personally congratulate all the work that you're doing because it's, it's incredible and inspiring and um, we will list down below on the description box of this episode all the links for Madre's uh, work so you can learn more and decide ways to support the different projects that they have. Um, there are three specifically related to advancing climate justice and before we leave I want to maybe talk about um, the work that you're doing in Kenya, in Sudan and you already talked a bit about Colombia but if you want to share a bit more. Sure. Um, so in Sudan, Madre worked closely with Zainab for Women in Development. They're a grassroots group that trains women farmers in sustainable, climate resilient farming techniques. And they're working in a context where climate change has worsened droughts and flooding, and that's destroyed crops. Um, and a significant portion of farmers are women, actually. They are the ones who sustain their communities, who grow food, um, and that's you know, the impacts of climate change are making it more difficult for them to feed their families. And so Zainab actually works with women farmers and equips them with eco-friendly equipment like tractors and seeds. And they actually created the first ever women's farmers union in the country to exchange knowledge, to exchange support, to exchange resources. And that is now 5,000 members strong and spans across the whole country. And I think this work has been particularly impactful because the government has denied women access to farm aid or credit or you know seed or fertilizer oftentimes because you know they might not be able to put up the same collateral as a big you know a large farmer um these are smallholder farmers who own small plots right and so they've been denied resources or support from the government so they've come together instead to generate these resources and support one another um, and through that they've been able to increase their crop yields even in the face of the climate crisis they're able to sell the excess and earn a little bit money to feed their families and to generate an income and then that has a multiplier effect right because when women are able to save this money they're able to send their daughters to school and get an education sometimes for the first time and so I think that this has sort of a ripple effect on both gender equality and also adaptation to the climate crisis in their communities. And the work in Kenya is similar. We're working with indigenous women who are on the front lines of the climate crisis, also facing drought um, that you know, increase their workload, right? In Kenya also, um, as I mentioned earlier, women and girls largely are responsible for securing water for their households. And so they must walk much further to secure that water when there's drought. And so we've partnered with the Indigenous Information Network in Kenya, who work specifically on this problem. They work with Indigenous communities and install wells and harvest rainwater. Uh, they deliver water storage tanks to communities. And all of this makes it uh, a lot easier for women in the community to access water. And they no longer have to walk for hours, right, to secure that. And again, girls can go to school, they can improve their health and education uh, as, as an effect of this. And IAN also works to plant tree nursery, deliver seedlings, and helping to reforest the land. And I think both Zainab and IAN 
couple their direct climate work with raising awareness of issues like FGM or gender-based violence, maternal health or child marriage, um, or education for girls. And this is actually, um, I think it's important to note that all of this work to tackle gender violence is also climate work actually, because these are areas of women's rights that are actually exacerbated by climate change. You know, for example, when families are struggling with low incomes, they might have little choice but to consider early marriage for their daughters. Um, and so these organizations provide a community-based support network to kind of counteract those impacts and offer, offer support to counter uh, gender-based violence and to reduce gender inequalities. And I think what was really amazing to see was how during the pandemic, a lot of the solutions that indigenous women had innovated to make their communities more resilient to the climate crisis beforehand actually also helped them sustain through the most most recent threat the pandemic for example you know iin was training and working with women to conserve and harvest rainwater in the community and that became critical as rural and indigenous communities they needed clean water to be able to wash their hands and prevent the spread of covid um, and so these kinds of solutions at the community level work not just for climate, but also to enhance the community's resilience on the whole. And just briefly to note about our partners in Colombia, we partner with Proceso de Comunidades Negras or PCN, which organizes to promote Afro-descendant rights uh, and leadership to protect their territories and their cultural life, rights. So they're really holding the line against mining and resource exploitation. For example, they've been working to confront illegal gold mining, where in Colombia, a lot of the gold is mined unlawfully and that results in contaminating the rivers, poisoning the fish um, and contaminating people's, uh, people's food as well. And so uh, one of the leaders of PCN, Francia Marquez, she's been working at the international level to raise awareness of this issue and also to engage women at the grassroots level to organize against illegal mining, despite the threats she's faced through her own life and safety. They've also been doing a lot of work to advance uh, Afro-descendant women's collective human rights and working um, to ensure the implementation of the peace process and to protect the rights of women human rights defenders. I want to end this interview asking you, how can we support your projects moving forward? Um, what are ways that we can uh, follow your work? How are, can we find you on social media? Sure, um, I just wanna share just a couple of projects and initiatives we're working on. You know, One is uh, through our the Feminist Green New Deal Coalition, which we help to anchor, which is a group of feminists and environmental justice and climate justice groups working to bring in intersectional gender lens and a global justice lens to US climate policy, including the Green New Deal. And so we released some resources for policymakers on how to create policies that, uh, that are crafted with an intersectional gender analysis at its heart. Um, and we've also launched a brief recently on the intersection of care and climate work. So that can be, of, you can access that at the feministgreennewdeal.com website. Um, and within Madre, we've also launched a campaign called CEDA for Indigenous Women. Uh, CEDA is actually an international treaty on the rights of women, but it doesn't specifically mention indigenous women and girls and doesn't adequately address the discrimination that they face. 
So we worked with indigenous partners worldwide, including IMI, uh, also known as the International Indigenous Women's Forum, to launch this campaign, which is uh, aims to call for a general recommendation that clearly lays out the collective and individual rights of indiv in indigenous women. Um, and so you can access that and more information on our website at madre.org. And finally, I just want to mention on the militarism side, together with uh, Grassroots Global Justice Alliance and Women Across DMZ, Madre has launched an initiative called the Feminist Peace Initiative. And that is focused around